Quad Vancouver. Pre-game, post-game, every game presented by Bodog from Sports Odds. The free casino games make a play at Bodog.net. Juan and J-Pad here with you once again. It's uh, some off-season news is trickling in around the league, J-Pat, and you can take one off the board when it comes to the Canucks and that 3C hole that they're trying to fill. We talked about this guy perhaps being someone the Canucks could go after in free agency. Sean Monahan is now off the table. He's going to resign, or he has resigned with the Montreal Canadiens, a one-year deal at $1.95 million. J-Pat, when you look at that, you go, jeez, that's the exact type of player that the Canucks could use, and that price is exactly what they would want. Yeah, I would come at it in reverse. I would say that's exactly the kind of contract that I would like to spend on a third-line center for the Vancouver Canucks. And, you know, Monaghan may not be the player, but if he's healthy, I think he could be a player. And it's a short-term deal, uh, fairly team-friendly from the Montreal Canadiens' perspective. And so that's what the Vancouver Canucks have to be looking at. And, you know, this is the danger, I suppose, is that we can look at these lists of available free agents, but there's still a week to go here before guys hit the open market and more will come off the board. Like others will come to terms with their own players. And so that's just going to make it, you know, that much more difficult. And then it becomes supply and demand. And so we'll ultimately see who is available, who's up for grabs when the Canucks get to that free agent window. They've got some money to play with now after the OEL buyout. But yeah, I mean, when I woke to that news and I thought, like, again, maybe not the perfect player but in that neighborhood veteran guy proven track record and just like that kind of contract to me is exactly what the Canucks have to be looking at uh for that third line center position yeah and that's the type of player that they want to get in terms of uh reclamation project if you will you know this is a guy that uh, you know had seven seasons of 20 what is it 22 or more goals and has found his game sort of slipping a little bit over the last few years. Now, he had 17 points in 25 games last year, which in terms of points per game is a, is a good total for Sean Monaghan. And, and maybe this year he'll find that rebound. But that is exactly what the Canucks are looking for in the type of player that they want at that 3C. Somebody that perhaps can give you some offensive flair, maybe has taken a dip in their career a little bit and is able to you know want to get a one-year deal that's, you know, what, under $3 million? Is that kind of what you've got earmarked for that 3C center? Yeah, I think just being realistic here, because we know that they've got gaping holes on the back end that have to be addressed as well. So some of the Mm -hmm. money has to be earmarked there. So that's why, you know, in my world, I don't want the Canucks spending a whole lot more than two and a half kind of on that third line center. I think you can, in today's market, find some value. Uh, is this is on your analytics department doing its homework. This is on your scouting, your pro scouting. And the American Hockey League guys, if there's a player that has, you know, maybe you know, just spent more time in the AHL and is ready to make the jump. And and that's kind of what they found with Dakota Joshua last year. Um, yeah. So I just don't think the Canucks are in a position where they can be allocating what little money they've got to that third line center. Yes, they need somebody that's better than Nils Amon, that has more experience, can give you, you know, more and more situations but they just, they can't be breaking the bank there. They, you know, already Elias Pettersson and JT Miller down the middle, fair chunk of your cap allocation to those two guys, obviously more on the way when Pettersson gets his deal uh, done. But for next season, at the very least, we know that uh, he's team controlled and, and there's cost certainty there. So yeah, like I just, you know, again, in my world, I would sort of earmark something under 3 million, two and a half would be perfect. And that's why the Monaghan deal, 
you know, there was the fixed cost, and then I think there was a small bonus for games played, so he has to reach a threshold there. And that's the issue with him, is that he's had a couple of seasons where he's been banged up. I think there was a hip injury, a uh, foot injury as well. And, you know, is he fully healthy? Uh, if he is, then, you know, I think the Montreal Canadiens did a nice, uh, nice job getting him locked up to a one-year contract. What do you think with this 3C position as well? Like, do you want to stay away from term right now? Would you like a player, like I mentioned, like a Sean Monaghan, somebody who's maybe trying to find it again, who's taking lesser than what they used to make on the open market before to sort of find their game? Is, would that be someone that you'd want to circle? Because I don't know how much term you want to be taking on right now with the uncertainty of what's ahead with some of these bigger contracts. Well, look, and we touched on it briefly yesterday about the fallout from the OEL buyout. You know, money to play with this year, a chunk for next season as well, but then you've got that $5 million carryover for OEL for two seasons. Now the cap will go up and and the Canucks are banking on that, but it goes up for every team. And so I I don't know that you want to lock in to term. I I think they'd like to find a a short-term solution here because let's see what they do in the draft. Like in theory, if they they use the 11th overall pick to take a center, you'd like to think that it's the kind of player in two years' time that might be able to step into your lineup uh, but they also have Max Sasson, who they signed out of college. You know, he may develop into a third-line center. You know, we've talked about other guys down on the farm, uh, Linus Carlson, although he's played more on the wing. But, you know, like, there are some internal options here. I don't think you want to cloud uh, the track of progress if you've got some internal options, including whoever they pick with the 11th overall. So, you know, if it's about getting to the playoffs next year, and we've had this discussion and debate, I mean, that's their stated goal, but... You know, are they going all in just to make the playoffs or are they hoping that they make the playoffs as part of a stepping stone, you know, putting the pieces together and in place that will make them a contender uh, in a handful of years? Then, yeah, I would go short term here. I, I, to me, it kind of feels like a stopgap. And look, if, if it turns out that the guy you get is the right fit, then then you can talk about extending and re-upping and all that type of stuff. But, you know, if, if I'm the Canucks... I'm going short-term, trying to find some undervalued players here that they feel uh, have some upside that can step in and and help this hockey club right away. I like this tweet from you yesterday, and I got a bunch of reaction from people as well. You asked, in what order do you think Breezebaugh, Rathbone, Willannon, Hirose rank on the Canucks internal left-handed shot, depth chart that is, of, of those four, which is likely to pay NHL games next season? I'd like to give you my ranking. I got Hirose at the top. I think they like him a lot. I think they like his puck moving. I think they like him on a third pair. I think we'll land in second, again, for a lot of the things I just said there. Breezebois, I think, is third. I think they trust Breezebois. I think they've seen enough of him over the years that they have trust that he can be, uh, you know, a guy, as you mentioned, stopgap before, a guy that can sort of come in and play a bit of NHL games when, you know, there's injury. And then I think Rathbone's last. And to be honest with you, I don't think Rathbone has a future with the Vancouver Canucks. I think Rathbone will be moved at some point here. Uh, by the team. Well, that was sort of my overarching takeaway was that, and this is not a scientific poll. I understand that. In fact, it wasn't even a poll. It was just a question. But the respondents almost unanimously feel that Rathbone has a foot out the door here, that there just doesn't seem to be a path when you've got Quinn Hughes and Rathbone in some ways is Quinn Hughes light. I mean, he's a little bit bigger than Quinn Hughes, but plays that same sort of style uh, you already got Quinn Hughes. Like, they don't need a time. I'm not going to say that they don't need more offense. I've been the guy that's leading the charge about more offense from the back end. But, but I think for Rathbone, 
they need to see that this guy can defend at the NHL level. And he's played under three coaches now. And I think that that's still been the knock on him. Uh, you know, and I, there were a few supporters of Jack Rathbone to that question. But like then there were a lot of people that were pointing out, like, Christian Willanen was the defenseman of the year in the American Hockey League last year. Like, for... You know, Rathbone's had some moments. And two seasons ago in the AHL, he looked like he was ready to graduate from the minors. But he certainly wasn't the best defenseman in the American Hockey League, or at least wasn't named top defenseman in the American Hockey League. Christian Willannon was. And Willannon's got 85 games of NHL experience over a bunch of seasons with a bunch of different organizations. But, you know, I mean, he skates circles around Rathbone in terms of experience at the NHL level, but also in the American Hockey League. I'm with you. Breeze was interesting to me. I mean, I know that he's a punchline in this market, and yet I think he did open some eyes when he came up, and he and he just, he's not about, like, flash and dash. I know, him. he scored a goal. That was cool. You know, first goal in the NHL. Nobody can take that away from him. Good but goal, too. He, Good goal. It was, but, but, you know, he just came in. They plugged him in. Uh, he got some penalty killing time. Like, he was all right. And so, you know, he's a bit of a wild card to me. And then the question is Hiroshi. I mean, A, he needs a contract, but then beyond that, seven games of NHL experience against, you know, there was a mix. I mean, he played the Kings a couple of times. He played the Flames when they were still in it, but he also saw the Ducks and the Blackhawks and finished in Arizona. You know, those games meant very little to anybody. So it's really, truly hard to, to you know, get a full reading on what Akito Hiroshi is. But in those games, didn't look out of place, calm, cool, poise, patience, all that kind of stuff. I think, personally, my rankings, I'd put Willannon ahead of Hiroshi at this point. I wonder if they want Hiroshi to get uh, some time in the American Hockey League just to play and play a lot and then at some point get the call up. Uh, and then I'd put Brisebois ahead of Rathbone, too. You know, the, the one thing is, like, of those four, I mean, Brisebois, I suppose, is the physically is just the biggest. You know, Hiroshi didn't look like he was getting outworked and outmuscled. And neither did Willannon, but neither of those guys, to me, is what I would call like a physically intimidating kind of defenseman. And we know that Rick Tockett wants some presence. He wants some toughness back there. So I still think the Canucks go out into the market. Uh, I know Carson Soucy is a name now that's getting a fair bit of run here in the marketplace. And, and I think on paper, he looks like the kind of player that would fit the bill for the Canucks. 6'5", uh, you know, has a bit of an edge to his game, but also can produce, you know, and, and he's not a massive point producer, but... There's not zeros across the board there either. So, you know, I, I think the Canucks probably go out into the market, try to find somebody that can play ahead of these guys that we're talking about on this poll. But I do think that just based on the cap situation that they're in, that one of those guys is probably going to be the opening night left side defender on the third pair. And one of the others may end up being a depth guy if they carry eight defensemen out of training camp. Which one of uh, Noah Juleson and Kyle Burroughs is going to be with the Canucks, or or you think both of them are going to? Because Dollywell is reporting that they're talking to them now, and you talked about the toughness, and you know, yeah, I think that you know that's a result of the Bear news last week, and yeah, not surprised that uh, there's sort of a doubling back here, the devil you know, as opposed to you know the uncertainty of trying to find those types of players in unrestricted free agency. Again, as much as I like Kyle Burroughs sticking up for his teammates and the guy's game and. When he plays, the numbers aren't particularly kind to him defensively. I almost feel like there is more value in Noah Juleson to be a tweener, to, you know, be a veteran presence down on the farm. But if they need him at this level, he can come up and step in. And, you know, this guy was a first rounder back in his day. Uh, hasn't lived up to the billing, obviously, but, 
you know, we see it. Like some guys take different paths and some take longer to arrive. I like the edge that, I mean, both Burroughs and Juleson played with, but I kind of, if it's me, I'm probably picking Juleson over Burroughs only because, and I need to see what they do with Ethan Bear, because if they do qualify Ethan Bear, then you're thinking, all right, you're not going to have him until December. But at some point, if he comes back, you don't want, you know, an equivalent salary sitting there getting pushed to the side. And I think that a guy like Noah Juleson could give you, I think he could give you some minutes in the early part of the season. And then if Bear is back and up to speed, then maybe he takes that spot back uh, whenever he gets the green light from the medical staff. But yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that they have doubled back on both of those guys, local guys. You know, they're familiar to the organization. They both seem happy in the organization. I just wonder if Kyle Burroughs does want to seek out more of an opportunity to play rather than knowing that his lot in life at this stage of his career, like, I wonder if he wants an opportunity to just be a little higher on a depth chart somewhere in the National Hockey League. Yeah, I don't know where that is, though. No, neither do I. But, I mean, all it takes is one team that, yeah. you know, likes the, the feistiness in his game. Maybe there's a team out there that thinks, hey, you know, he didn't get enough of a chance in Vancouver, that he was just a depth guy, that if we play him every night, you know. But, uh, again, I, I do think some people, you know, the, the the shiny object here is that he drops his gloves and he, he's willing to go with anybody. You got to be able to play. And, as I said, the underlying numbers weren't terribly kind to Kyle Burroughs. Now, it was a bad defense. So, you know, is he a product of the environment? Yeah, maybe that's part of it too. But, he, you know, ultimately, uh, nobody on the back end outside of Quinn Hughes can look themselves in the mirror and think that, you know, they were good enough uh, for the Vancouver Canucks or that a performance like last season would help this team take the strides forward that are going to be necessary to make the playoffs. I don't know about his underlying stats, but Cole Lynn's counting stats are crushing it right now in the Calder Cup playoffs. If you haven't been paying attention, uh, the Cowichan Valley uh, forward not has the, 30. Not the Cow- Did I say Cowichan again? Yes. Coachella not Valley. The- oh, my gosh. <laughs> 30 points in 25 games. He's leading the uh, Calder Cup uh, playoffs in scoring, and Game 7 goes down tomorrow I mean, listen, I'm not going to say this is one that got away for the Canucks, but it's definitely trending well for him. But again, do look at his stats over the years. He projects to me as your sort of classic quad A player. Yeah, look, I'm just happy for the guy. And I think it's cool that it's going to a seventh game in the American Hockey League and that the, you know, this is the Seattle uh, Krakens farm team, the Coachella Coachella Valley Firebirds against the Hershey Bears. And so, yeah, I mean, Stanley Cup was presented, uh, you know, on the weekend there or just late last week, and yet the AHL season continues here. So uh, it, it looks like it's been a pretty good series. There have been a couple of overtime games, and Coachella had its back to the wall, got the win it needed. And so uh, one game, winner take all, and good for Cole Lynn. I, I, you know, when the Canucks picked him, we've discussed, I mean, Nick Hegg was the next selection. He was there on the board. The Canucks opted for, for Cole Lind. Uh, you know, we talk about the fact that they don't pick many guys out of the Western Hockey League, and he was one of them. And yeah, I'm with you. I'm not going to sit here and say like, oh, what a massive mistake there. Uh, when you see what other teams had to expose in the expansion draft for the Kraken, and the Kraken took Cole in, and and we'll see. Like he's played in the NHL, but he has spent the bulk of the season in the American Hockey League. So you know, it's going to be on him. But what an experience! And absolutely, he's risen to the challenge here in the American Hockey League playoffs, we'll see if, you're right, is he a quad A guy? Is there another step, another level for him to be a full-time National Hockey Leaguer? Yeah, one thing I'll say about Cole Lind throughout uh, his professional career, 
He's just started to play a full season this year. Like Coachella Valley, he played 72 games and he had 62 points. So he's kind of breaking out a bit. Those years that he was in Utica, the most he played was 61 games in a season. And he had seasons where he had six games and eight games. And of course, that first one was uh, when he'd just come over from the WHL. But you know what I mean? He hasn't found his footing just yet as a pro in terms of playing a full season. So Yeah, and the COVID season yeah, of course. as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll see what uh, comes of Cole in. But right now, uh, Coachella Valley is mm-hmm. liking what they're getting from Cole in. The Arizona Coyotes did not like what they're getting from Zach Cassian anymore, so they bought out the contract. The former Canuck is this the end of the line for for Zach Cassian? I mean, what is he early thirties right now? But I mean, things haven't really trended well. He's thirty two years old. Things haven't trended very well over the last few years for Big Zach. Fifty one games played last year, J Pat. Just two goals. Yeah. You know, most importantly, it looked like he got his life back on track when it was going sideways there for a while. And I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if uh, he would regain you know, control of his life and his NHL career. He had a couple of decent seasons in Vancouver. He had a 14-goal year. He followed it up with a 10-goal season in 42 games. So, uh, you know, project that, 20-goal uh, pace. But uh, it's one thing to project it. It's another to, to get it there. You know, he skated well for a big man. He had some toughness, but, you know, the hockey IQ, I think at times there was a knock there. Uh, I'm not sure that he processed the game at the level that uh, he had to, but, you know, he's been a survivor and he's carried on, you know, drafted by the Sabres and then part of the Cody Hodson flip, uh, came to the Canucks, went to the Oilers and then finished up uh, in Arizona. You know, end of the line, yeah, I, I mean, he's 32. He's not 37, so... Uh, physically, maybe he does have something left. Like, is there a team on a league minimum that's willing to give him a try if, you know, they think that he could still bring an element of toughness? I, I'm going to say, and I say it with all due respect, he's probably played his last NHL game. No, I think so too. I, I, it's just the game is is passing him by, it looks like. And the fact that he got 51 games and had such little production maybe says a lot about the Coyotes as well, but... You know, he's definitely, his game is definitely, uh, it's just not there anymore. I think, he, of course, he got his best years uh, with Edmonton there where he was able to go back-to-back with 15 goals in a season. And you're absolutely right. Like, that trade to Montreal, like, let's keep in mind, he never played a game for the Montreal Canadiens. He had the incident, and then basically they flipped him to Edmonton, and he was able to uh, get his life back in order. But um, there was elements of Zach Cassian's game that I really liked, especially when he came out of junior because he did play for the World Juniors back in 2011 there, and he made an impact in uh, that tournament. But I just remember him coming, stepping into the league as one of the Buffalo Sabres draft picks, and then, of course, the Canucks picking him up. And there was some hope that he would be you know, this rough-and-tumble type player that the Canucks could benefit from. But, of course, uh, he was dealing with other issues in his life, uh, and he was able to get himself back together in Edmonton. But, yeah, it looks like perhaps this could be the end for Zach Cassian in, what, 661 NHL games. For Big Zach. So, long career. And, you know, played 16 playoff games for the Edmonton Oilers yeah. a year ago. Yeah. Like, just over a year ago, suited up for 16 playoff games. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. It was out of sight, out of mind. I knew he played in Arizona, but I hadn't tracked his statistics. But to play 50 games and have just two points, like, that does make you wonder a little bit about what... Uh, what exactly were you doing there? What was your role for the... Uh... Well, what exactly are the Coyotes doing there? The fact that they're slotting this guy in and he's doing nothing every single... Also a dash 18 on the season as well. But he did have a, a, a penalty minute per game almost. 50 penalty minutes in 51 games. So there you go. Uh, but we'll see if Zach Cassian can find himself back in the NHL next season. BC Place, J-Pat. Mm. 
40 years old this week. Little bit of hockey history behind it, of course. Who can forget the Heritage Classic? But the 1990 NHL draft also held at BC Place. Do you remember? I was there. Remember it fondly? Yeah, no, I was there. Uh, you know, the backstory, you're right. I mean, we think of BC Place as uh, football and soccer and concerts and boat shows and uh, whatever else. They held a lot of things over the years. But uh, yeah, I mean, there are hockey connections. Uh, the Heritage Classic would be the first one, and that was a forgettable day all around, but uh, it did happen there. Uh, the 1990 draft was interesting because uh, the Canucks hadn't moved downtown yet. They were still out of the Coliseum. Draft was supposed to be held at the Coliseum, but there was a labor dispute, and they were worried that uh, it was going to be behind picket lines, and they had to pivot. And so BC Place became the host site of the 1990 draft, which, you know, best known, I suppose, to Yarmir Yager. Um, you know, when you look at the Owen Nolan went first overall, Peter Nedved, the Canucks had the second pick, and they swung and and missed on Peter Nedved as they have uh, through the years on a lot of draft picks. But uh, you know, Keith Primo, uh, you had Yager. Let's keep in mind though, the fourth highest scorer in that draft was an eighth round pick, Peter Bondra. Okay, nice little piece of trivia there. You know, people focus on Nedved in Vancouver, and rightly so. They had the second pick, and Yager went a couple picks after that, but. More than that, the Canucks had three first-rounders. Like, you, you think of all the chatter in this market for the last bunch of years about loading up on draft picks and the idea of going to the draft with three first-rounders. They missed on Marty Brodeur. They missed on Keith Kachuk. Oh, what could have been from that 1990 draft? Darian Hatcher, he was a mean, mean player. You're right. Kachuk went 19th, Broder 20th. Yuri Slager by the Canucks at 23rd overall. Sean Antoski. There. Yeah. I mean, the Augers the big team. miss, obviously, yeah. right? Uh, going fifth overall in that draft. But, you know, Philadelphia took uh, Pitt, uh, Mike Ricci one pick in front of him as well. So, you know, there was definitely some misses in that draft and the Canucks definitely missed out on, well, technically all three of their picks. The BC Lions are back in the playoffs and hosting the Calgary Stampeders on Saturday, November 4th at BC Place, kickoff at 3.30 p.m. Looking forward to this one, playoff football, BC Place, the Lions and that offense with Vernon Adams at the controls and all of those weapons he has in his receiving core. And you just think about the atmosphere in that building with the fans behind them, the Dome will be rocking, should be a ton of fun. Tickets on sale now at bclions.com and check this out. They start at just 30 bucks. And kids 17 and under can get in for 15. So bring the noise, fill the dome. Applewood Auto Group is celebrating 25 years of business, making the car business and our communities better. Applewood offers the best in-class experience, whether you're looking for a car, service, or to join our team. Come find out why it's all good at Applewood. Visit us online at applewood.ca today. We love to get your Ask JPAC questions, and we asked for them at the start of this week. We got a couple of good ones in here, but keep them coming, folks, especially with this time of the year with all the uh, movement that ex- is expected around the N- uh, NHL. A lot of the insiders, JPAC, are saying, listen, don't know anything just yet, but think a lot of things are going to happen. They're all saying it. We'll see. But we did get a couple of Ask JPAC questions, and this one is from Zhao. When will the short sighted moves end? Will it be with new management or with a new owner? Is the OEL move considered a short-sighted move? Or is it just 
trying to get out from, you know, what was a short-sighted move then. Like, I'm not sure where the question's coming from. I don't know that this management group has, you know, it took them a while. They got their head coach in. I I think Rick Tockett's probably safe, so we're not going to have to go through a coaching change again anytime soon. You know, I need to see what they do here at and around the draft and then in free agency, but... I mean, it's hockey. There's pressure on these guys to produce results and an owner certainly that wants to see results but hasn't for the better part of uh, a decade. Um, you're not getting an ownership change. Like, people can talk about the ownership change all you want. I don't get, like... It's not happening. Yeah, like, so, I don't know. I mean, it, it's... Hey, let's, let's keep in mind, the ownership just bucked up $20 million to get rid of a problem. Yep. And I saw people, people were saying, like, why are you guys applauding ownership for doing this? Like, you know, they were going to pay $30 million. Yeah, no, they, they, they took this $20 million chunk and put it over here, but they're still going to spend the money on players to likely be a cap team. So it, it wasn't this idea that, you know, oh, they're saving money in the long run. Yeah, they're they're out from what was fully owed to Oliver ekman Larson, but they're likely to spend that money on this roster. And in fact, the cap goes up, and if they remain a cap team, then there's going to be an even larger cash outlay here. So... Yeah, I mean, the short-term thing, look, this is a team and this is a market, certainly, that wants some playoff hockey. I think the bulk of the fans want playoff hockey, but they want it done properly. They don't want like all the eggs in one basket just to make the playoffs and get obliterated by the Vegas Golden Knights in the opening round. So that's why I say, like, you know, I'm trying not to punt on the question, but I, I, I you know, and look, we'll be here uh, throughout the summer, not every day, but uh, let's get through the first couple of days of free agency and see if they are short-sighted moves, if there's stop gaps, if there's a, you know, a, more of a plan that's coming into place. I, uh, just a couple of things I, I was told this morning that we're likely to uh, have access to Patrick Alvine before he departs for Nashville next week. So maybe sometime later this week, we're going to hear from the general manager. I was a little surprised when they made the OAL decision. I know he was quoted in a press release, but like, come on, like that's, that might end up being the biggest decision that he makes in his time as general manager of the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, I would like to have been able to, you know, hear from him in his own words a little bit more, uh, press him a little bit on, you know, some of the decisions and, and all this. So anyways, uh, we may hear from Patrick Alvine. That may excite some people. It may not excite everybody, but I, that much I know. The other one is, and I know Frank Valley reporting that uh, he's got six Philadelphia Flyers on his trade board now. And the biggest names are uh, Travis Konechny and Travis Sanheim. It's my understanding that the Canucks have kicked tires on both of those players in the past that, you know, I don't know how far far down the road they've gone. Obviously, Konechny was connected to Bo Horvat because they're second cousins, but Horvat's not here. Uh, That wouldn't stop the Canucks, I don't think, if they felt that Konechny was the kind of player he could be a pain in the ass to go and play against and... You know, anyways, uh, take that for what it's worth, but it's my understanding that there have been inquiries at the very least by the Canucks on, you know, the the bidding price for Travis Sanheim, the defender, and Travis Konechny, the the forward. Travis Konechny's on a very good ticket right now as well. Two more years at five and a half million right now. Sanheim has a a lot left on his contract, 6.25. re-upped last year, I think. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah, interesting there. I, I mean, one of the things, though, maybe... Like Patrick Alvine was able to, you know, make the problem go away to a certain degree because it's not really going away for eight years when it comes to uh, OEL. But for at least this year, it opened up a, a bunch of cap space for them. But 
this really, although he solved the problem per se, this really wasn't his problem to have to answer to. So maybe that's why he didn't want to come out and, and cause essentially if he wanted to, he could come out and could have sewered Jim Benning and been like, this was a terrible deal to begin with. And my hands were forced to be able to, to do this. So maybe there's that, you know what I'm saying? Like it really wasn't his, and he was, he was just only the guy that had to solve it. Look, I, I've made this abundantly clear in the past and purely selfish on my part. You know, I've been on this beat for over 20 years covering the Canucks. I, I want access. I want information. I'd like to be able to talk to the general manager every single day. I think there's enough, you know, inf- there's enough sort of issues around this team. And we went long stretches in the season where we didn't have access to him. And it all builds up. And that's part of it, too. And then you get these press conferences that last 45 minutes and he looks uncomfortable uh, you know, I, I just think in a market like this one, and I don't know if the Canucks listen to Rinkwide, they should, but, you know, it, it just feels to me like, you know, every couple of weeks, there should be some sort of access to the people that are in charge, the decision makers. We know we're not going to hear from ownership. That's why I just thought, like, that was such a a seismic shift for the organization to write a check to make OEL go away. I feel like Jim Rutherford has that personality of someone that you could yep. regular? I don't know if Patrick Alvin has and, that. And totally fair enough, except that in the market like this one, there is hunger. There's a thirst for knowledge, not just from the media. We're the conduits. We're the ones that, you know, if we're loud, get to go to the press conference and ask the questions. But the information, you know, like, I don't care. Like, I, I'd like to be the one that has access and gets to ask questions. But ultimately, if it's one of our colleagues, I just, you know... I think the fans appreciate hearing, you know, some of the reasons that went into the decision-making and, and all that type of stuff. So anyways, uh, maybe by the end of this week, you know, certainly at the draft, you hear from general managers uh, before and after. So we'll hear from Patrick Alvin and then the quick turnaround this year right into July 1st. So that's fascinating to me, too, that the second day of the draft is the Thursday, first round next Wednesday, second round all day Thursday. And then you're going to have, like, all these teams outside of the Predators uh, I would think, unless some are just going to stay in Nashville and set up some sort of war room there, but like, you know, they're working the draft floor late into the day on the Thursday, and then you have to hustle home on the Friday. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, if I've done it before. There's no easy way to get from Nashville to Vancouver. Like that to me, when I was out on the road, that was like a full day of travel. I think I had to go through Houston or somewhere. Like there's no directs from Nashville to Vancouver. Anyways, and then, you know, first thing Saturday, the free agent window opens. So a little different this year than uh, some years. It'll present some challenges, but hopefully uh, all those teams have done their homework. Uh, this question sort of ties into what we were talking about uh, with Patrick Alvin and, and Jim Benning. Corey asks, has anyone in Vancouver media been successful in contacting Jim Benning? At some point, he has to answer for the mess that he left. And maybe that would be the message that Patrick Alvin will give him. Like, I don't know, man, I cleaned it up. Why don't you call him and ask him why he made the damn trade? <laughs> Uh, so there's a couple of questions within that question. Uh, I know that the day after he was fired, I reached out to Jim Benning and, you know, I just said, hey, you know, thanks for uh, the help over the years when he was available. And, you know, like, it, you know, I just sent him a quick text and, and he texted right back. And, and I, by the sounds of it, comparing notes with other people in the media, uh, it, it may have been a cut and paste. Like the response was, it sounded like it was the same to everybody, but I just... You know, I just wanted to reach out. Um, but yeah, like it, it's remarkable that he got out of town. He didn't release any sort of statement about getting relieved of his duties. Like he just went quietly into the night. And 
Uh, I think attempts have been made to reach him, but it certainly doesn't sound like he has any interest in talking about, you know, what I, like what went on, what went down here, uh, how it ended for him. You know, is there another chapter in his hockey career or is he settled into retirement now? Like, you know, he certainly hasn't surfaced. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I would pose the question back to the questioner is like, I, I get where you're coming from. And trust me, I'd love to be the guy that had an hour to talk to Jim Benning and go through a lot of the moves that he made. But, you know, does he have to answer for it? Like, does anybody really think that at some point, like Jim Benning is going to have this moment where he's like, no, I got to reach out to somebody in the media and, and have my, you know, my moment and explain step by step. I, I don't think he'd have any appetite for that. Like, it went horribly wrong here at the end. And he has to know, he's lived his entire life in the hockey world. He has to know that he was getting hammered repeatedly by people in the market and out of the market and people around the league. And, uh, you know, my sense, just knowing a little bit about Jim Benning, the person is that he doesn't want any part of revisiting that. Like, you know, look, he aged a ton. Like when you look at the pictures of him getting hired to him in his last stand, you know, it looked like he had been here 25 years. I think it took a lot out of him. I do. And ultimately, did he produce a winner? No. Uh, did he make some baffling decisions? Was the OEL deal uh, desperation trying to save his job? I think there was an element of that. And ultimately, it was totally misguided. And most people sort of felt that they knew that before it even went down. You know, signing Tyler Myers, there were enough warning signs there that that was just something the Canucks should have no business doing with that player and that contract. Uh, and all those July 1st, where it was just ridiculous sums of money for, you know, veteran players. Sell Beagle. Yeah. yeah. And Louie, obviously. Um, Louis, but this yeah. sort of... Although the Louie deal at the time, like, there were people that were, were praising it, right? Well, and, and yeah, I mean, that July 1st, so much money was spent on yeah. so many players that never lived up to their contracts. So it wasn't just the Canucks, but ultimately they got that one wrong as well. I guess my question would be like, does he have regrets or, you know, ultimately did he and his staff, because it, you know, I mean, he had people around him. That was the problem. Like where were the people to say, hey, hang on, like, wait a sec, Jim, this isn't the right move at the right time for, for this organization. But, you know, there was so much importance placed on veterans and you know culture carriers and all that kind of stuff but you got to be able to play ultimately and too many of those guys that came in uh just added nothing to the hockey club yeah and his problem too was that he would get fixated on a player and then just would would have blinders on it at that point yep. right no, and that, that was, was the whole Olya levy story yeah without a doubt yeah. yeah uh so there's nobody following him around at grocery stores anymore we're not getting we're not getting that uh no, I mean, uh, look, I don't know this, but I, I think he retreated to his off-season home in Portland. I th- that, that last report, I think, is where he hung out. I don't know if he attends Winterhawk games. Like, I don't know what role hockey plays in his life at this point. And this is a hockey lifer. This is a guy that loved being in rinks and going and scouting and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's remarkable how low a profile he has kept since uh, that December night when uh, he was shown the door here in Vancouver. Do you think he returns to the NHL at some point? Uh, I don't know. Honestly, I, I, I don't have a feel for that. I mean, he's, I don't think he's ever going to be a general manager again. Look, Peter Shirelli keeps surfacing and Dale Talon's got, you know, some sort of advisory. Like the old hockey man thing and lifers in the game seem to surface again. 
you know, is there a team that would try to just allow him to do some scouting or advising? Yeah, maybe. Like, so I wouldn't write it off entirely, but I don't know. I don't know what motivates him these days. I don't know if, you know, did he make enough money through his playing days and, and his management career? Could he retire? Probably. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I don't know kind of what feeds uh, his motivations these days. The BC Lions are back in the playoffs and hosting the Calgary Stampeders on Saturday, November 4th at BC Place, kickoff at 3.30 p.m. Looking forward to this one, playoff football, BC Place, the Lions and that offense with Vernon Adams at the controls and all of those weapons he has in his receiving core. And you just think about the atmosphere in that building with the fans behind them, the Dome will be rocking, should be a ton of fun. Tickets on sale now at bclions.com and check this out. They start at just 30 bucks. And kids 17 and under can get in for 15. So bring the noise, fill the dome. And those Ask JPAC questions are presented by our buddy Jason Hominick. Jason, got more yeah, we're all gearing up for the draft and then free agency. I'm sure Jason is as well, but this guy can multitask. That's one of his many, many skills. So, you know, if you're down to the wire and you need a mortgage renewal or you're in the market and your deal is closing on July 1st, I know it's free agency day uh, in the NHL, but uh, again, Jason can multitask. So uh, he can watch what's going on with all the hockey transactions, but he can also help you with the most important transaction, and that is uh, your new home and closing that deal and making sure that you've got the, the financing necessary. So uh, he wants to talk. Well, he, he says, hey, just tell the people he's there a phone call away, and it all starts with that simple call. And we always say, hey, you know, if you need an icebreaker, if you need something to, you know, to start the conversation, Hockey's a great place to start, and Jason's up on all that's going on around the National Hockey League, but he's really up on what's going on in the mortgage world. 30 years of experience there, so uh, check him out online, jason.mortgage. Jason Hominick, he is our mortgage man, and he can be your mortgage man as well. A good icebreaker might be uh, asking him whether or not he thinks Alexander McGillney should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. He has the potential to be on the 2023 class, J-Pat. We've been banging this drama, I think, for a while now. Would love to see him get in there. And, of course, Sergey Gonchar is one of the guys that could be one of the inductees this year, and he's got some ties now to the Vancouver Canucks. But to me, when I see this class of potential inductees, come on, can we just get Alex McGillney in the Hockey Hall of Fame where he deserves to be? Yeah, call to the hall will go out, uh, I think it's noon Pacific time on Wednesday. So we'll see. Um Henrik Lundqvist seems to be the lock in the eyes of most people. and uh, But beyond that, uh, some of the ram- – or just the guidelines. First of all, four male players. Four men can go in in the player category. Two women. Uh, that's the maximum. Uh, a builder. And then you can have an on-ice official as well. And we'll see if that slot is filled. But when it comes to the four players, most people think, seem to think that uh, King Henrik's going in. And then you get – you know, Henrik Zetterberg, McGillney's certainly, in my mind, got a strong case. Jeremy Roenick, I know that uh, he's kind of been blacklisted a little bit uh, in recent years by the hockey community. But, you know, when you look at his on-ice performance, uh, hard to argue there. Keith Kachuk, you know, those are some of the names. Uh, Patrick Eliash as well. With the women, Caroline Roulette, Jennifer Botterill, we see her on TV now. But a great playing career as well. Megan Duggan. Predators outgoing general manager David Poyle, pretty strong consideration, I would think, given uh, his lifetime of commitment to the game. Important to remember that it is the Hockey Hall of Fame. It's not the NHL Hall of Fame, but 
most of these uh, players get in based on their NHL careers. Yeah, I mean, McGilney, 1,032 points over 990 games, so better than a point a game. Led the league in that uh, one season in Buffalo, 76 goals. His first year in Vancouver had 55 goals and 107 points. You know, won the Stanley Cup. I think that's a, a checkbox for him. Obviously, the Twins and Luongo went in last year. You don't need the Stanley Cup, but uh, that strengthens his case. Got traded from the Canucks to the Devils and won the Cup that spring. You know, four times he played in the NHL All-Star game. Twice was named a second-team All-Star at season's end. Won a Lady Bing Trophy, so he's got individual hardware that way. You know, represented Russia at the World Juniors, the Olympics, and in a World Cup as well. Like I just, it just to me, it's like check, 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 like all the boxes that require checking, and it hasn't happened. I think this is the ninth or tenth year that he's been eligible. So, you know, some some years the classes are so strong that you're going to say, hey, eligible guys, worthy candidates, they just don't make the grade. But this is a bit of a, a a spotty year where I think you can make strong arguments for a lot of players, and McGillney is certainly one of them. So I, I think they get it right. I, I think that they will name Alex McGillney. Uh, and of course, the voting's so secretive and nobody ever, you know, they're not allowed to talk. So we don't know what goes into the discussions and how close some guys come uh, and others don't. But I, I think McGillney is going to get the nod this year. Henry Lundqvist, this is his first ballot that he's on? Is that correct? I think so, yeah. I think so. Uh, J-Pat, I'm sorry. He's not a lock to me. Like, he's a, he's won one Vesna. He was a two-time All-Star. He went to, what, one cup final? And we, we have people arguing that, about Sergei Bobrovsky. Ser, Sergei Bobrovsky's had a better career. And people are saying, Hendrik Lundqvist, lock. Sergei Bobrovsky, eh, we'll have to see. Now, I get it. You said it's Hockey Hall of Fame, so there is some international... Uh, medals there as well for Hendrik Lundqvist, including an Olympic gold. But to me, Locke? Popular goalie? Perhaps. But Locke? First ballot? I don't think so. I I, I think he gets in. I know he gets uh, in. I think, no, I know he does. I think he gets the, the handsome man nod. That's ridiculous. And that goes a long way, I'm told. I don't know this uh, as fact, but I'm told that Well, you've been handsome, getting through life get, through it, no? Like, yeah, yeah you know? No. no? Uh, that's why I'm on radio and, and now podcasts <laughs> and, and not the video version very often. Um, but look, the market he played in, he was, he, you know, he was the face of the franchise and, you know, quite a face at that. So, uh, you know, I think that that, like, honestly, I, in some ways, the reputation uh, grew. You're the star goaltender on Broadway in New York and you transcend hockey. He would go and do the morning talk shows and the late night talk shows and all that. And you know, now he's doing TV. But you're right. Like, ultimately, when you get right down to it, you know, was he one of the best of his generation? Sure, he was. Goalies have been massively underrepresented in the hall, and that's why Cujo, you know, there's a, it's sort of like McGilney. I think there's a case that Curtis Joseph, just based on the longevity of his career and the numbers and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, like I, I would say with Henrik Lundqvist, you know, the international stuff probably is what puts him over the top that, you know, just based on his NHL career, it was very, very strong for a lot of years, but. Um, I think you need sort of some of the other elements there. Uh, you know, the, the guy for me, and look, Sergey Gonchar has just joined the Canucks coaching staff. Uh, you know, he's got ties, obviously, to Rick Tockett, and so Tockett brought him in. You know, hard to consider him a Canuck, but he is employed by the Vancouver Canucks now. I don't know, like, did I overlook him? Had I forgotten? Like, his numbers are incredible. 
and were for like a long, long time. And this guy played 1,300 games in the NHL. He's 18th all-time among defenders. Like a top 20 score. He had a 26-goal season one year. He had two 20-plus goal seasons. He had 60-plus points three separate occasions. He won a cup with the Penguins, so there's the cup for him. He was in the top five in Norris voting in four separate years, which tells you that he was among the very best, you know, not once or twice, four times. He was in the top five in Norris voting. And then, you know, there's that international part of it. He played in four Olympics. Like, this guy had a long career, a successful career. Yeah, I, I don't know. I hadn't given it a whole lot of thought, but now that there's his ties to the Canucks, I was looking more at his career. Like, I, I, I think you got to think that there's room for Sergei Gonchar in the Hockey Hall of Fame at some point. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think you're right about the numbers. I, I, I When I went and looked at him, because I saw your piece on the Hockey News, and if you guys haven't read that, just head over there and check it out. But yeah, they, they, they jumped off the page to me. Like, he's he had a better career than I, I gave him credit for. So I think Gonchar is definitely one of those guys that, I, I think he's bubble, but yep. uh, I think maybe in a weaker class, like perhaps this year, uh, he could find himself in. I, I do have to give... Hendrik Lundqvist, a little bit of credit because you talked about being a Norris finalist. Lundqvist won it once, but was a finalist four times. For the Vesna. For the uh, one, two, three, yeah, four other times. So so I will give him that, but just one time winner. No, that's what I'm saying. He was among the best in his era. There was no question, but... And maybe he's first ballot this year because of the fact that the, the class isn't the strongest, perhaps. Yeah, but I also think that there is an element. Like, he treated people right, people drawn to him. Like, that all factors into it. He was a very engaging, magnetic personality. People wanted to be surrounded by him and be in his orbit and, and all those types of things. Like, you know, it all factors in. So, yeah, we'll see what happens uh, Wednesday and we'll see who makes the grade. Of course, our Rinkwide Vancouver is presented by Bodog, Canada's home for casino games and sports odds where everyone goes to play. So how about I give you a Bodog line then? I, they're not up. I would love to see if they'll do them for the Hockey Hall of Fame. We're running out of time, guys, if you are going to do them as well. <laughs> but uh, what would you give McGillney in terms of uh, a betting line? Like, where, where would you go? Would it, be, would it be minus money or do you think it would still be plus money? No, I think this year, it just it feels like the time is right. I, I think it's probably minus money. I, I think he's better than even odds to to get in okay yeah all right there you go well come on bodog get on it because uh it's happening in less than 24 hours here uh we do have a, a ahl line j oh game seven yes game seven of the calder cup final is going down in that's cowichan valley against uh alberni valley is it or are they playing the naimo who are they no coachella valley <laughs> versus the hershey bears of course that uh uh, classic AHL franchise in the Hershey Bears, but not so much with Cowichan, but they're having themselves a fantastic season right now. And they... You just did it did again. I do Cowichan again? Oh, my God. Coachella. There we go. <laughs> Jeez. I'll get it right at some point. Anyway, they're having themselves a great year, and they are the favorites going into Game 7 at minus 136 on the line. We'll take a look at that tomorrow. We'll see if it moves at all. But uh, if you want to get in on that, maybe you believe in the Hershey Bears. They're at plus 105. I, I kind of like Coachella on the puck line at minus a goal and a half at plus 195, almost getting two to one on your money there. But we'll see. We'll see where the odds go tomorrow, Jay Pat, and then I'll make my final decision on what I'm betting on. All right. I'm betting on this being another fantastic episode of the Rink-Wide Vancouver podcast presented by Bodog for Jeff Patterson. I'm Andrew Wadden. Remember, Rink-Wide is the show. Hello.